Hi, this is Harry Judge, also known as Tevrin Crit and other Tellarites from Star Trek Discovery, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek-inspired podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Star Trek has always been a show about exploration, meeting new life, and seeking out new civilizations. You've heard it before. It's these alien characters that fire up the imagination and have continued to make the series so unique and groundbreaking from the day it first aired to today. That tradition of strange-looking creatures continues, of course, throughout all the new series that come out, and that leads us to our conversation with this week's guest, Harry Judge. Harry has played the role of several Tellarites in Star Trek Discovery, including Admiral Gorch, a mirror version of Gorch, an unnamed Tellarite from another episode of Disco, and Tevrin Crit from the Trek Shorts episode The Escape Artist, starring and directed by Rain Wilson. You likely noticed him, since it's hard to miss an alien who looks like that, but it's also quite a process to make a person look like that, especially when you consider how short most of his appearances were. As you're about to hear, Harry is extremely passionate about his craft, he has an unmatched enthusiasm for acting that is infectious. In fact, you may have noticed this episode is a little longer than the previous ones, and that's because you're about to get a masterclass in performing from a Shakespearean-trained professional. It also doesn't hurt that his mother was an educator, and her ability to teach has most certainly been gifted to her son. If you ever wanted to learn about the process of acting effectively under heavy prosthetics, sit tight like you would in a makeup chair, because you're about to get the answers you've searched for. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. One word, no spaces. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering your support in any way, thank you for your help. Most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to it. This helps more people find us and hear the show. And I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired products for toys and people. But you're going to hear more about them a little bit later. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold. Now, joining me on the other side of the line, we have Harry Judge, who you guys might remember from his appearances on Star Trek Discovery. Well, when I say remember, you're going to remember what he's done, but you might not recognize the face because he was quite heavily made up in those episodes, but we'll get to that. Now, Harry, how's it going today? Uh, it's going great. Thanks, Matthew. So let's start things off with a question I like to ask all my guests on this show, and that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Earliest memory is watching syndicated episodes of the original series. And it's hard to even know when that would have come from because they would have been happening all through my youth and so it's and, and they come from more from an image perspective um watching them at the years that i would have been watching they it's sort of like uh it's a kind of a, a collage of moments not specific episodes per se but it just it's just images of the uniforms and of kirk and spock and particularly in the ship and the sound too, the soundtrack and the sound effects. Um, so those live within me in a, in a preteen place. Um, and, you know, my stronger memories were 
came with Next Generation because those could because I watched those in in real time upon release. Um, but but the early memories, yeah, syndicated original series. Now, I read in your Facebook you have this really great memory about Star Trek Generations. Can you tell us about that? Oh yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, 1994, and it was the first movie that I'd ever. Um, you know, bought tickets in advance for and, uh, and lined up for. And it was in a movie theater in Edmonton. I was going to university and uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and went with some friends from school. And, and the movie theater there was, it was called the Paramount. And it was uh, one of the old style, large cinemas with a balcony and just beautiful big seats. And it really felt like an event and it was one you know it it went to have all of those uh characters and casts together it was a magical moment because there was something it felt like you were attending a premiere you know it felt like it was like this is this is something significant and it really in a lot of ways it it was for a lot of people um and, and a global thing too so I don't know that I was thinking of it in those terms. That's more of a reflection. But at the time, it was uh, yeah, it was a really special thing to to go in and see that. All right, so let's take a trip down to Little Harry. Growing up, uh, especially since you are our first Canadian guest on this show, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you were like as a kid, what your parents did, and uh, ultimately how you got interested in acting? Sure. What I was like as a kid, I think, <laughs> I think probably. The answer that I've been using um, most lately when I share with people my childhood is is Harry Potter. <laughs> because, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, it's it's really not because of the name. It's more because of I, I was shorter. I was I had really high grades. I had straight brown hair in a sort of simple style. Um, I had glasses, and I did. I wasn't. Um, because I I had done two grades in a year, so I was younger than everyone else as well. I, I felt like I didn't quite fit in with everyone else. Um, all the students around me were tended to be were older, but also taller, usually as a result. So I did really feel different. And I was so into reading; I read all the time. Um, I read all this, like tons of Stephen King at a very young age. I uh, was very much into comics and fantasy literature. <laughs> so when Harry Potter first came out, actually, it was like uh, people were suggesting that I read it. And I'm like, you know what? I've, I've been there. I don't really need to <laughs> read this <laughs> this uh, youth, this child wizard story, whatever. I'm like, I, re- you know, I grew up on Tolkien kind of thing. And, uh, and then when I ended up reading those books, I actually found them truly beautiful and they ended up having this kind of unexpected therapeutic effect on me, which was that when I grew up, the name Harry was abnormal. Like it was not common. There was no Harry Potter. There was no Prince Harry. There were there's no Harry Styles. <laughs> there were not these Harrys that have you know become really prominent in our society. Harry was unusual. Um, we had Harry and the Hendersons, which was an old '80s movie, and Harry. Anderson, Judge Harry Stone from Night Court. Those were, that was pretty much it. So the name Harry was unusual and I was made fun of for it. What I found after reading like the fourth or fifth book, I became aware of this, uh, this effect, this impact of, of, of the books on me, which was that seeing the name so much 
you know, in a context of a protagonist, someone who is associated with like, for lack of a better word, heroic acts or, you know, good deeds and is appreciated and loved and rehabilitated my relationship with my own name. So yeah, so using Harry Potter's analogy was, it, it did, I think it paints a pretty accurate picture of me as a kid um, for who I was, but then it also helped kind of heal a little bit of that for me, just in terms of how I felt a little bit outside as a kid. And I was very, I was, was very active athletic. I played soccer, loved playing ball hockey, as all Canadian uh, kids do generally in some degree. Uh, I didn't play ice hockey. I never learned how to skate very well, but tons of floor hockey, ball hockey, soccer, summer sports, that kind of stuff. So, but was a big, big reader. And my first jobs were actually at comic book and uh, collectible stores. Uh, for three years, I worked at two different comic book stores in the small city that I grew up in. So I was really in that, quite immersed in that culture of, of fantasy and sci-fi and uh, comics and grew up on some of Orson Scott Card's sci-fi books and Chris Claremont had some great sci-fi stuff. And of course, he was an X-Men author that I followed over to, to some of his sci-fi works too. So those stand out too as some some influences. Yeah, definitely excellent influences to have. Yeah, yeah. No, they were... I agree. <laughs> yeah. um, my mother was a school teacher and she was an elementary school teacher and with a, a drama focus. So she also taught the drama classes for all the grades. And as time went by, she ended up uh, becoming uh, an administrator and the first female principal in, in the district of, uh, of an arts-focused school, uh, fine arts-focused elementary school. And uh, so that was fairly uh, notable for, for her at the time and, and really reflective of her commitment to, to drama and to art and to expression in that way. She was and still is just passionate about performing and, and theater. And she was always involved in rehearsals and in creating productions for schools. And, and that was a big part of like her, her day-to-day life and on top of her school teaching. And I bring that up to say that though that was there, I wouldn't necessarily say that she was a direct influence on me in acting to answer your other question. My earliest memories about acting were participating in Christmas concerts. Um, I grew up in a Catholic elementary school. And so I remember little drummer boy being one of the lead drummers and singers and in grade six being Santa Claus in the Christmas concert play. And which was, <laughs> there was kind of an irony in that because I was the smallest kid in the class, but I was, you know, probably the best suited to learn all the lines and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, just in terms of like the way I had a really good memory. So I did really good in school and stuff. And, so um, I, I remember those moments and actually the little drummer boy one in grade four, that was probably my first really crystal clear moment of performance and being on stage under the lights at the front of the stage at the lead of the thing and looking out into the black, seeing these you know, lightly illuminated faces and feeling like this is right. This is, I'm, I'm, this is exactly right. Something about that felt kind of like pure and and just like I was exactly where I was meant to be. I continued to have high school related experiences in terms of drama class, but not much more than that growing up. In fact, I really thought I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor or 
you know, because because of my grades and because I was a I was a champion debater. I was a had some, some great success debating in junior high and high school. So law seemed like a natural evolution of that. <laughs> For anyone who understands like what a lawyer's actual job is, it's not it's it's not what you see on TV. So I guess I decided I'd play one on TV and have a couple times. <laughs> it was like. Uh, I love debate. I love using language. I love participating in argument and cultivating and creating that. And that is a component of a lawyer's job, but it is certainly not all of it. And for whatever reason, you know, I job shadowed a lawyer in grade 12 and I, that experience solidified for me, like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and then there were a couple other experiences that eventually led me into the conservatory acting program at the U of A, uh, the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, and professional training program of the caliber of Juilliard in the States. That's the closest corollary, 12 people, three years, um, very concentrated training. There are two schools, the U of A in Edmonton, Alberta, and the National Theater School in Montreal, Alberta, that were really of that kind of higher, at that time, really of that higher echelon of acting training. I was blessed to go to that school, um, had phenomenal teachers and uh, an amazing class and you know, though we're spread out around the country, we still feel like family now. And uh, it's, yeah, I had a really wonderful experience in theater school. So that was kind of, that was the origin for me. Uh, just before we go any further, to answer for my father, he he uh, was an immigrant from England where he took as his trade painting and decorating. So growing up, he had a couple businesses of residential painting and decorating, everything from houses and apartment buildings to industrial um, so cineplexes or multi-million dollar gas plants, he, um, he had a businesses that would paint and decorate those, those sorts of things. And he learned all kinds of really unique skills painting, like when he was younger in, in England, it was, uh, painting glass and using particular kinds of fabrics on walls and, and a glip to like wallpaper that you hang and paint that. And so he was a real, uh, artist in that way. And, uh, yeah, so th that's what they did growing up. So you grew up around very uh, practical, creative people, essentially, which is very cool to have. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, even though I didn't necessarily pick up some of those direct skills for my father, particularly. You're right that yeah, there was a creativity and influence between like there for both of them. Yeah. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your formal acting training uh, and your education. Um, so where you attended? Is this where you began to do Shakespearean acting? Yeah, my first experiences of Shakespeare, I remember in high school, and I think it was maybe Julius Caesar, the first one that we went in depth with. How I feel about Shakespeare is that it is, uh, I feel like it's fair to approach Shakespeare as though it's a foreign language. The reason is because we have, <clears throat> we're dealing with a variety of words and uh, forms and structures and even uses of punctuation that are simply not used anymore. So whether they're words that are not used anymore or words used in different ways, in order to fully engage with Shakespearean text, there, are, there needs to be a learning of its rules and how it operates as a language that are different than the way that we use English, English as a language now. My experience first being exposed to Shakespeare in, in high school was that it was a language that made, that it made sense to me and that it didn't 
you know, in the same way that some people might just take to French or take to Spanish. For me, it just it just made sense. It just came together. And I ended up learning a lot more about it. But at the time, it's something about the poetry and the rhythm. And it just, it, I just remember it going, yes, for me. Like I just, I embraced it and, and really appreciated it. And I remember finding, finding an assignment in grade 12. It was something about paraphrasing five of Hamlet's monologues, I think. And I had a hundred percent on it. And it was like, I didn't go back and look at it, but I, when I saw that mark, I'm like, yeah, this, when I look back years later, I realized this, this all kind of made sense to me even then. Then it was getting into that, that program at the U of A where things really deepened. And as I mentioned, it is a conservatory style program. And it has, uh, at the time that I, entered the program which was september 98 it had already been around for um it was coming up to about almost almost well 50 years of the studio theater but but a slightly less of that in terms of the program itself the point is is there was a long established lineage and pedagogy of the the intent and philosophy of the training for that program and it was very much classical text-based training we're going to teach these students how to be professional actors on the biggest stages using the hardest material, which tended to be the classics, Shakespeare and Shaw and, and the like. And so text-based training, really engaging with Shakespeare was a big component of that. And, you know, I, th I think it's been said, and I was felt in the program too, that if you can handle that text, then it's going to set you up well for pretty much anything you may come across in theater, in plays. So, <clears throat> During my time there, there were two two teachers of text and voice that were true experts with the material. One was Betty Moulton and one was David Lee. And they uh, both had side careers as coaches in larger Shakespearean festivals as well. Betty at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival and David Lee at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival or the Stratford Theater Festival, which focuses a lot on Shakespeare and they like they <laughs> taught me just so much like everything everything that uh, everything that I knew came from them I think like it was fortunate that I had a facility already so that then when the tools that they gave I really was able to pick them up and use them and it made even more sense to me and I feel so fortunate that I was able to to receive from both of them during my time there and uh, they both became <clears throat> mentors in various ways and i worked with them both professionally and um and afterwards and yeah just real gifts and amazing individuals great great teachers it was fortunate for me to to have them and and it was identified by the school kind of during my time there that i had this facility for not just understanding the material but also being able to assist others in understanding it too and it's one thing to have a, a gift for something but the ability to convey that understanding to others right so if we if we use continue to use this analogy of a language you can maybe be really good at, at speaking it but are you able to then bring someone else are you able to then teach someone else a language well and that, you know, for anyone who's taught, one of the challenging things for a teacher is how do you meet people where they're at? How do you tailor what you, how do you tailor your instruction 
you know, how do you read where an individual's at, what they're, how they're, how they learn and where they're at, what they're capable of receiving and then tailoring your instruction to that, to those people. So I think that I picked up some innate teaching ability from my mother's side of the family, her and all four of her siblings were teachers and educators, uh, educators and administrators. So it was uh, all of them on that side were teachers. So I think I, I got some of that naturally there. And so you, they recognized that. And very quickly afterwards, they brought me back to um, work as a text coach at the university. So quite quickly, I, uh, a couple years later, I text coached, I text coached. Yeah. I think that's the right word. That sounds yeah. like a word. Yeah. I'll go sure. With that. Yeah. Uh, the winter's tale I worked on and then Romeo and Juliet. And then I came back and, um, directed uh, a project ring around the moon by christopher fry really beautiful play and then uh directed and directed slash coached on um did all the text work and teaching for uh 12th night as well so um loved my i've loved my relationship with the school as you know just both what i learned there and then the fact that i was able to come back and continue my work uh with shakespeare that way it's very true what you said i think really true mastery of any kind of craft is the ability to give that information to another person and have them be able to use it. So uh, it's a very commendable trait to have that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, um, there's certain arts we can, we can, can be appreciated. Like when you watch, you can appreciate what the person is doing, but then actually like, as you say, being able to translate it, being able to transmit it, those, those skills or techniques to someone else. Yeah. It's, uh, it's another skill entirely. So tell us about your first professional role that you had on television or film. How how did that go for you? <laughs> oh wow. Uh yeah, okay. My first my first film gig was as paramedic number three, I think, for a movie that at the time was called White Coats and then became uh was later renamed Intern Academy. It was directed by Dave Thomas of SCTV fame, um, which graduated such uh, luminaries as you know John Candy and um, Eugene Levy and Dave Thomas, obviously Rick Moranis. So, yeah, it was my first. It was my first role. I don't remember the audition. I don't remember if I auditioned for him. I don't remember it at all, actually. Um, but I remember the doing of it being like extremely stressful. It was like the first time on a set and just not knowing the world at all like having never been on one you don't know what you're looking at like you don't know what what are all these wires and where do people where like where do people actually stand and who are all these people and who do i talk to who 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 knows what about what like it was just overwhelming as a especially at that time like my performance energy was you know my 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 fire as a performer, as a stage performer, was just, it was this thing, it's a, it's this internal visceral, like, activation of, of uh, this energy that builds before going on to perform. And I didn't understand how sets worked. So uh, I, we got to this old abandoned hospital, which was like, really kind of creepy. I mean, old hospitals, they just had this feeling of like, whether they were used for, for, uh, like mental hospitals or, or that kind of thing or not, there's just seems to be this kind of old feeling of there's a lot of old ghosts in, in old hospitals, a lot's happened in those buildings. So there was something kind of eerie about it. And, um, and I remember that, that feeling of like, what, where, like, 
what what is this place? <laughs> it just felt it felt uh, yeah, I'd never been in an environment like that before, and so getting, well, of course you work with Dan Aykroyd, so I bet he probably chose that location. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, as you turn on the corner, Bill Murray's there with the trap. It's like what? No. Uh, <laughs> what ended up happening because of that is, I you know getting to the set and just ready i'm ready but i'm ready hours before i really need to be ready and then hours before again before they actually get to me so by the time i actually get called to set which was just truly hours after i was called i was shattered like i'd well blown through my adrenaline reserves and my like my you know my readiness i was just i was like a wreck i was just done and um, so it found it like really stressful and, and being in front of the camera for the first time, like they're not small cameras. They weren't then like we're more in digital now, but, uh, but, and even now there's still, some of the rigs are quite large and intimidating, but back then they're even, you know, it's even more. And in my experience and, and it's just like, I, I'm terrified. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to, how to be in front of this. I I felt like, and that's the thing too, is because it was my first time there. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm clear. Like I'm obviously a fraud and it's only going to be a matter of time before people see that, before people see that I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, so there's this other layer of tension. I'm going, you, when you don't know what you don't know, you don't know how you may be revealing the fact that you don't know. Very true. So it's like at some point I'm going to be doing something that tips the hand and I'm a complete rookie at this and you're not quite sure what it is. And so there's, um, and, and like truly it took me years and many experiences on set before I fully got over that. Uh, because I, I had got professional theater training, but I didn't have professional like set film TV training. I wasn't, I hadn't spent time on sets before. I hadn't learned about etiquette or about who you talk to or had any experiences before. So it's all so new. And to be thrown in on the, you know, in a professional environment where you're getting paid and like, it's, you know, you have to deliver it. Yeah, it was very high stress. So I haven't seen it in a while. When I did end up looking back at it, I felt like, oh, okay, I wasn't, I wasn't that bad, but it's been, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I'd be curious to see how I felt about it now. I was excited because when I first got to Toronto, it was, I was being shown here uh, in a true theater, but I never ended up going around to seeing it. So I've only ever seen it on TV. So basically the big lesson you learned from this first appearance was really like the number one law from your first beginning as an actor. And that's wait and go. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a very tough lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah. Wait and go for sure. Uh, like finding that way to be in an idol <laughs> where, you know, the engine's running, but it's not, but you're not revving. I'm guessing everyone has different relationships with that, depending on where you come from and your like if you come from a theater background or that performance background, but, but finding a way to kind of um, be present and breathe and just kind of, I think the thing too, it depends on the material, but because if you're, if you have a very high affect character character or, you know, or you have something that you, that you have to be really emotionally geared up for, then you kind of have to, depending on you as an actor, then you may need to be living a little more at that in order to be able to get to set and be where you need to be. So the project, you know, it depends on the project too and, and the needs of that. So, but that was a lesson learned for sure is yeah. Wait and go. 
So after that, you moved on to a few other shows, a few other movies, uh, including a TV series called Nikita. You were on Rain, which is about Mary, Queen of Scots, fun series. Uh, you were on Saving Hope. Uh, but what I want to talk about, I guess, right now is uh, a little bit about a TV movie you did called Flint, which uh, is essentially based on reality. It's uh, based on what's been happening in Flint, Michigan, with the water situation there. And your role was as uh, Kurt Guillette, who is based on an actual real-life person. He was an investigative reporter uh, for the ACLU of Michigan. So I just want to get your thoughts on playing an actual person in real life. And if you'd ever heard anything from Kurt, if you ever saw the movie and had any thoughts about it. Yeah, thank you. I uh, I felt really honored to play uh, Kurt because his participation in that crisis was uh, was really key, and you know, like humanitarian work, the work that he was doing to draw attention to the crisis and to report on it. And I had wondered from the beginning, like, would I connect with him in person and just touch base with him and have a conversation? And I ended up not doing that. And that felt appropriate at the time because I was able to reference a lot of his work online. So I saw interviews with him on YouTube and I read his articles and I read his Twitter and um, I think I followed him on Twitter. And I, I definitely contemplated connecting with him and just, but in the end, it felt like given given what the script ended up being and what, what the needs were there and given how much I um, I was able to get from, from the work himself and, and to see him and observe him. Yeah, I didn't feel like I needed to go further in that way. Although, um, upon reflection, if I was to do that over again, I, I think it might be nice to have reached out to him, not so much for my needs, but maybe just to offer him the opportunity to potentially participate in the telling of a story that was his and to see if, you know, how what what kind of involvement he'd like, like if he'd like to have a conversation with me or share his insights or to, you know, so, so if I was, so if I was to do that now, and it, you know, it's been a few years now, I think what's coming up right now in, a, in this conversation with you is that that could have been an interesting possibility is to actually just, just for, um, for his sake to say, Hey, um, this is happening. And I'm guessing, you know, but what would you like to know more or how would you like to possibly participate? So, so that's what I would consider doing in the future. Yeah. And yeah. And that movie was, um, I was really delighted that that movie actually it, it won, I think, uh, daytime, like, was it an Emmy that it won? I think it won daytime, like it won TV movie of the year, maybe a couple different awards. So really enjoyed connecting with Neil Marin, uh, one of the producers on that. And it was, uh, yeah, really positive experience. It was a primetime Emmy nominee for outstanding television movie. Uh, it won black real award, I believe, uh, in a few, or it was nominated in a few different categories as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was very critically acclaimed. It did win uh, NAACP award uh, as well. So yeah, I mean, that, that movie did really well. And uh, I'm hoping it did some good things to your career as well, because it continued to lead you on to some other projects. And one of which I'd like to talk about that you did was uh, the hit TV series Suits. Sure, yeah. And so you were in uh, season seven episode, which was titled Tiny Violin. And uh, in that, you got to do a scene with Patrick Adams and Meghan Markle. So uh, just tell us a little bit about that experience of being on Suits and this very surreal fact that you shared the screen with someone who would become British royalty not long after you worked with her. Well, I'll, I'll offer just a little correction there. My All my work was just with Patrick. Well, it's just okay. Yeah. So I did say Rachel Zane. I, I did say her name, but she was, uh, but I never actually met her, which was totally for the best because I, <laughs> I loved that show. And um, had auditioned for it several times over the years, 
and had kept up watching it because it, it is it's kind of responsible as an actor to be watching the shows that are being shot in your town and that you're auditioning for and this was one that i you know we talked earlier about my interest in argument and debating and my my youthful flirtation with the possibility of me as a being a lawyer and so and i just i just loved the way the formula of this show i loved the music i loved the casting i loved the writing it was it just so worked for me and so suits really does seem like it's tailor-made for you i was i had a blast on it i mean i love being in suits one of my after i got off after i got out of uh, my comic book (laughs) stores time as a kid i worked at sears in grade 12 uh, in menswear and so i was forced to wear suits and or t-shirts and t-shirts sorry dress shirts and ties and dress pants um at that job so i was i really liked dressing up even from young age and did a lot of it in grade 12 with that work and so so any excuse i had to be in a suit was more like great as opposed to some people feeling uncomfortable in them i i love dressing up in suits so so even that it just it was a great fit and and so given my love of the show and my how much i watched it and was was really caught up until up until season season seven yeah like i had well developed my crush on megan markle and i was i don't know how it would have gone if i'd actually had something to do with her i just speak and i say that because doing the scene with patrick himself was already i was i i was starstruck like looking up because he's a taller guy certainly taller than me and looking up at him into his eyes which are just so present and blue and i'm like i'm speaking to mike ross right now and that was going through my head before saying my first line and i was just just on that hair's edge of blanking because i was just like uh (laughs) finally words started to come out of my mouth and then it unfolded and it, it kept going but yeah that was that was legit being starstruck and i know it would have been doubly challenging if it had been around megan so i was glad to not <laughs> to not actually to not meet her so um, but that show i felt really honored it, this is a really good example for any potential aspiring actors that are listening to this because i think that was my seventh audition for that tv series and i look back I, you know i look back at the at the parts and like you know each time and especially as your as the seasons continue and you continue to watch the show and grow to enjoy the show and then love the show and feel aligned with the show it starts to be a hit that like it's a hit to the system like it hurts a little bit the fact that like you keep auditioning and not getting cast you know it's like it's a little it's kind of rejection from this thing that you like or you know this uh, girl that you like or something you have a crush on it's like you love them but they're saying no to you so it's like ah as opposed to auditioning for something that you have no investment in right so it was challenging continuing to audition and and knowing that there were only going to be so many seasons so you know we're getting into season seven and if i'm not gonna get cast soon i may not get cast at all and that would be like a real shame because i just love the show so much and i feel like I'd, i'd i'd have something to offer it so over the years, I would go back and I'd look at the parts that I didn't get and be like, yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. I can see why I didn't get that. Yeah, that was good casting with that guy. That's that's the right fit. So not only did I kind of agree with the casting after the fact with who they picked, but but truly, if I were to look at all of those parts that I auditioned for, the one that I would have wanted to get is the one that I got. That's the part that felt that that led to me having the best experience i feel and there was a a really lovely resonance to it too or or you know i was in the trailer my first uh, when i first got to set and uh, in the sorry in hair and makeup and patrick came to sit next to me 
to do to get his done and he mentioned he's like oh so you're harry he's like so so you're playing andy he's like so you're gonna be you're gonna be the last person that i work with on suits <laughs> like wow no pressure yeah absolutely absolutely you know it was like a moment of kind of pressure and then also this moment of like awesome because i knew that i was bringing a true like love of the show and an appreciation of him and his work and of what the show has done. So I actually felt really honored and, and glad that I got to have that responsibility to do that. As it turned out, I think he may have had to do some reshoots or something got pushed. And so I ended up maybe not being the last guy that he worked with, but, um, but the sentiment is still there. And it was my experience at least for a little bit. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, I was really touched by that and felt like just, also, yeah, the sense that I really wanted to make it, you know, to do whatever I could to, to make it a great, to deliver, right? To, to give him something that was to support him, to give him what he would need to, to feel fulfilled by those last scenes. That's a really great memory to have of a show that you love so much, too. <sighs> yeah, for sure. And, and so that was, so I mentioned earlier about how it took me some years before I really felt at home on a set. And I would say that by that stage in my career, I well had felt like a professional as a theater performer. I performed in a lot of different theaters, a lot of big crowds, um, a lot of places around the country and had been in Chicago a couple times already. So I, 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 you know, I felt confident that put me in a theater and I can play that. I can play a, a space or a stage. I'm a professional theater performer, but I still, my, my film and TV experience was still, you know, infrequent enough that I still didn't really feel like a pro there. This experience, the way that Suits unfolded um, with in terms of like of the relationship with the cast and the crew and um, and the director and how they felt about my work and how I felt about my work, all of those elements coming together um, had me they came together in the strongest way on that with that experience. And I being driven home after my last uh, day, I was like, okay, I just, this feeling settled. And I'm like, I now feel like I'm a pro <laughs> on set. And so it really was, it took until the end for me to have the experiences and the kinds of experiences where I really felt like, okay, I'm, I know what I'm doing now. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. 
Hello, I am Jose Betancourt, the host of Cheese, a photography podcast. My podcast covers everything photography, not the hardware side of things, but the adventure, my adventure in photography. I also have a few guest hosts who will hop on every now and then. They both have varied experience in photography, and they know way more than I do. So I pick their brains, and things that they tell us is really remarkable. So make sure you check out Cheese, a photography podcast. You can find it on iTunes or at RageWorks.net. We now return to Trek Untold. So Harry, you must have been riding quite the high going from this great appearance on Suits to then going into Star Trek Discovery. So now we're going to start talking some Trek. And uh, my first question about that is, how did you end up being cast on the first season of Star Trek Discovery? My first audition for the show was my first audition for the Tellarite and ended up being my only audition. So whereas some people have been getting brought in for a variety of different roles, I hadn't yet. I'd yet to have gone in for the show. The audition request, like, so the, when breakdowns go out, there are various criteria that are requested, sometimes physical. And in this case, the request is to have, you know, five eight or shorter and people with smaller heads. <laughs> so, uh, all right, that's pretty unique. Yeah. So, which makes sense because you you gotta you gotta throw another head on top of their head. So if you, they've got a really big head, then the head that's gonna end up is gonna be really really big. So. Yeah, it makes sense that they would want someone with a little bit of a smaller head. And I guess I ticked those boxes and I, I got brought in. And yeah, so it was, it was my first first audition. And it ended up being, like I said, my only one because they auditioned for, they were auditioning for Tellarites and Andorians. And as far as the day that I was there, it was just all men that were auditioning for, for the male versions of these of these characters. and. I came in, I did my audition. I looked as uh, alien or as spacey as I could. I was wearing um, my my five finger Vibram uh, or Vibram shoes, you know, the shoes that are like, that have your toes kind of in separate pockets. And so I wore those. So I might, my feet would look a bit different. And I wore this like skin tight uh, Adidas workout shirt that was, had a bizarre pattern on it. Like, it looked futuristic and it looked kind of outer spacey. It was just blue striped and just different. It, it just looked other. So I went in with that and I didn't realize at the time that I, I thought I was auditioning for a new alien race. I didn't link that Tellarites had already existed in the canon or were already pre-established. So I didn't do any research into Tellarites as a race before this audition. I just went in being heavily uh being steeped in star trek having grown up with enterprise and seeing the movies sorry not enterprise uh, next generation um having seen the movies and feeling like i understood star trek and understood the tone of it and understood what they were wanting in the scene so went in did that audition they called i think a couple days and were like you're kind of on a list would you be open to doing callback and it's like yep for sure and then they call back a little later like you know what no we're not gonna do the callback it's like okay next day so we're thinking we are gonna do that callback are you available and it's like yep yeah for sure and then that gets canceled again and then the next call is from the agent and they book me and that was it so that audition that was my only audition for star trek is my only audition with tellers and i only did one take too 
Like I just went and I, I did it the way that I felt was right. And uh, the casting director, Lisa Parison, was just like, that was perfect. Thank you. And that was all one take in out. And that led to, to this happening, which, you know, when I think about it, it's, it's, it can sometimes just all, all happen that I don't want to say that easily because I did prepare for that audition and that audition, you know, I used, I really drew on my understanding of Star Trek, but also having had some really wonderful mask training in my, in theater school, using bringing some of those principles into to the audition knowing that i'd be under a full prosthetic just just bringing some of those elements tailoring the audition a little bit to kind of indicate a sense of performance with the whole the whole head and the whole being not just eyes and subtle but speci- subtle specific and and just that sense of, of of incorporating that so whether that was ever acknowledged or or seen or registered by the people who made the casting decisions. I don't know, but for me, it really felt like it was, it felt like something that I was bringing. That was just, just as an indicator that like I got what it would mean, what would be, what would be required to play through um, a mask. I definitely have more questions about that when we get closer to talking about your uh, later appearance as Tevrin Crit in the Trek shorts. But before we get over there, I just want to talk a little bit more about the time and discovery that you had, because you played uh, this Tellarite or rather two different Tellarites, uh, throughout four different episodes of the series. And uh, so my, my big question again is just more so on the prosthetics. You talked about you've had experience wearing full masks in your training, but what was the process like to first get fit for all of this prosthetics you're wearing and then the, the experience in the makeup chair and then just being on a set wearing all this hot gear and your larger wardrobe and just bring us through the whole process of becoming a Tellarite. Wow, yeah, it's... Uh, so the process, uh, <laughs> after you get cast then you get cast, right? There's a, you, you, there's a cast that's made of you. And uh, for me, it was uh, head and shoulders and, and hands, which actually went all the way up to forearms. And was that done by Glenn Hetrick from Alchemy Studios? It was outsourced to um, some local Toronto um, artists. So there were some, the, the individuals that, that, were, that cast me were local here, and another company that um, that had been working on the production, and there was a lot that was going on uh, in that season with all of the Klingons, and uh, so the there were times where they would just have so many prosthetic staff on, and then for me to get added in to get cast that day as well, like they'd already had a, a big makeup day, I believe, that day, so they'd already done a lot of prosthetics, and so so I wasn't working with anyone directly at that time anyway, that, who did my cast with that was part of Alchemy. But the casting itself was, it's a, so one of the questions that they ask you before the audition that you have to answer on camera is, are you claustrophobic? Are you allergic to latex? There was another question. And then one of them was, are you claustrophobic? And that is a question that you really want to answer honestly, because being, being in that head and shoulders cast and having your, having your eyes and your ears and your mouth like or your nose rather fully fully closed fully covered is a very intense experience and when i got asked that question in the audition you know i felt i answered truthfully um but i still didn't really know what i was answering for like i got the sense that i was going to be under some prosthetic but i wasn't thinking 
thinking ahead to this particular aspect of the experience. And so being under it and kind of as the layers of, <laughs> of the casting go on uh, and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier and you're fully, you know, you're being covered up and it's like, you're going to be there for an hour uh, plus underneath that for it to, to cast and form and, um, and for it to do all it has to do. Like it's, it's a long time. I did, I did feel good through the process and I, I but I really, like, I have to say, I, I, grew up being a little bit claustrophobic. Like I have memories of, of kind of being trapped in some tight spaces and kind of freaking out. So, um, I'm just really, gl I'm glad that I had dealt with it enough to, to be able to answer on that question, honestly, but then also to, to deal with this experience because it is a lot. And I know that there are some actors who don't, who actually who aren't able to get through it. Um, for me, what was helpful was just the fact that I, I had done enough meditation <clears throat> over the years leading up to that, that I was able to, to tune in to that and just find that inner space and stillness and, and, uh, breathe, you know, connect to my breathing and just sort of like tune, like go inwards. So that was a huge help and, and what got me through it. And yeah, so that was the process of, of getting cast originally. And then there was a makeup test where you, um, well, there was also a contact lens fitting. So we got, Take, we got sent to an opto a local optometrist and they did all the the scanning and the tests and so there were, there were there were ways in which things could potentially not work out for an actor like if you if you can't get through the casting or if you or if they take a if they get a sense of your eyes and you're like your eyes because of the shape of them or because of some condition of them that you have or whatever you won't be able to wear contact lenses and so that could potentially disqualify you so there are these sort of subsequent steps that need to you need to go through before you really kind of are able to to get to to on to being on set. And in fact, four of us ended up getting cast: two males and two females. Whereas in the final episodes, we have myself playing the uh, Admiral Gorch uh, or Mir Gorch, and then we also have Riley Gilchrist playing Admiral Shikar, the Andorian. So he and I were the male the male versions of the Andorians and Tellarites that were cast, but we also had a female version of each that were cast as well. And both of those individuals were booked for episodes just like we were, but they ended up not being used. So even though they'd gone through all the casting process, just like us and had the prosthetics developed um, because the script no longer called for them, they never uh, saw screen time. So it's, it is an interesting, you, you kind of never know exactly how it's, what's going to be the fate of these things uh, until, you know, until you actually end up on set and you can be booked, you can be, your days can be set and planned. And then if they just, if the script changes and they don't need you anymore, then, then it can shift. So in this case, Riley and I were the ones that were, that moved forward. And we, we did get to play a couple of versions, like you said, of, of our characters. So for myself, it was, you know, it was Gorch. We, and we were introduced to the mirror version of him in, um, episode 11. And then we met Admiral Gorch in um, the regular timeline. And then we also <clears throat> met a different Tellarite Admiral unnamed in season two. So there were, there were three iterations, I guess two or three, depending on how you look at it. Um, Gorch for sure. And then the Tellarite Admiral in season two that came from that and uh, different prosthetics. They, um, the material was different as well as the, the actual sculpting. So we had, but the process was the same, the actual prosthetic process. 
Now, did you speak with Doug Jones or any other veteran actors who've had to wear heavy prosthetics before you put on yours? I, I did meet Doug briefly in the trailer, and I would have loved to have had a dialogue with him about it. And at the same time, I feel like, you know, and I don't know if you've talked to anyone else who's worked with him or, or himself, or, or, but he's an extraordinary man. And I, I do not know him well <laughs> at all. Like, um, you know, we had some, we had that, an experience on set and then we, we spent, uh, we met at um, STLV last year and he's like living love. When he met me in the trailer and he just sort of put his hands on me, there was a transmission with that. It felt like, I don't know, it just, it felt like something was given. And whether it was just an essence, whether it was some some subtle code that that like I don't know, but there, but I I felt like I received I, I felt like I received something from him that would constitute some kind of support through the process coming up. Apart from that, no, there were no other real um, there weren't conversations that I had with anyone. I think it would have been a good idea, and I'd love to offer like I'd be fine to have conversations with anyone who would want to because it's it's such a unique experience. And not one that you can practically prepare for. I don't know. You know, in, in I think that in big ways, it was um, I've, it was the, one of the most demanding things I've ever done because it's just it's um, the circumstances the of the the shoot too all add to it. So you're you know we're we're shooting outside. It's summertime. It's thirty above, hotter in some of the areas and you're underneath all of that and you're sweating and you can't eat solid food and your um, contacts don't fit right. And your prosthetic teeth are cutting into your gums and <laughs> it's like, and, and you don't even know how much of those things you can fix because it's like, I didn't, I didn't even know to speak up about my teeth, for example, until a couple of days in um, because I just, you know, I'm still kind of trying to understand what is going to, what's going to adjust, what's going to shift, what can I speak up about? So uh, it was a huge learning process. And I was really so fortunate that I had those experiences on those episodes before Tevin Tevin Crick came along Um, because they really led me to feeling comfortable in the prosthetic, familiar enough with it that I could actually be confident and know that I could show up and deliver a much fuller, more demanding performance as uh, Tevern required. Yeah, let's let's talk about Tevern Crit now, since that is the Short Treks episode, The Escape Artist, uh, which is a really one of my favorite Trek shorts, uh, where you get to play, again, that Tellarite bounty hunter, a new Tellarite, Tevern Crit, and you've just captured Harry Mudd, who is played by Rain Wilson, who also directed this short. So... Really, the first thing I have to ask is, what is it like working with Rain Wilson, not only in front of the camera, but also behind the camera? It was a blast. Like, Rain was fortunate because we had, they gave him rehearsal time. So we had, we had time in advance to really plot it out and block it out. And, and he, he got a chance to, to, we got to be on the sets and, and, and yeah, get a, get to walk through what we were planning, what we were going to be doing which was a great experience just to, to get to know him as a person too. And for him to see who I was because my prior experiences on set, because we would get to set before the regular cast and get under makeup, there were, there were, I spent time on set with some of the main cast who never saw my face. 
<laughs> and so I would like wave to them. You know, they would recognize the alien, but they didn't, they never knew who I was. So I made a point a couple times at like, um, either when I got out of makeup to just see if like to, to introduce myself to Sonequa because we had some interaction in the show so that she would know I'm the guy you've been looking at. <clears throat> Wilson Cruz was, was an example of someone who I spoke to while under prosthetic. And then I went up to him at a convention and was like, and I showed a picture of him. I'm like, I'm this guy that talked to you back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, just to say like, so that they would know, you know, put the face to the person. So this was really nice for rain to <clears throat> see me for us to actually see each other for him to get a sense of my background of my training of what i was bringing and for us to um get a sense of, of the story and all of that and then also to talk voice which was a really key concern for me a consideration which as far as just a little bit of a divergence here you know the tellerites <clears throat> up to this point i think one of my strongest memories of a Tellerite voice is in Enterprise, uh, the other bounty hunter, I think it's Scalar, the character's name is. And I sort of felt that his tones were sort of full and kind of plummy. <clears throat> there is sort of, you know, it was a really human sounding voice. And yet the physiology, it is really not human. And so given how the the current, the alchemy, alchemy, studio's design of this current iteration of Tellerites is even continues to that to push that bestial aspect of the Tellerite physiognomy (laughs) physiology um I was really like what how do I what am I going to do here with a voice because this is going to set this will be the first speaking role of a Tellerite in discovery as a show and it will set a bit of a template in terms of how how we sound and so I was really, really wanting to get a sense of like what was going to make sense. So um, we got to speak about that a little bit, and that got to influence what I ended up doing on set too. And and then Rain himself working with him on set was great because you know as a, such an experienced actor and coming from a theater background, and and I felt like because that he you know we got to dialogue about my background, I felt a sense of trust from him that he could throw stuff at me and I could just do it. <clears throat> so we'd be in a take and coverage would be on me and he'd be, or even on him. And he would, he would fire like a one word direction at me or, or a couple words. And I would just give it again in that way, give it again in that way. So there was a great sense of like, as a fellow actor, just him knowing to give me something else from an actor perspective that I could then take and, and give right back. That was great really fun to do right in there because normally you're getting direction from outside, but because he and I were in the thing together and he could just, we could stay in the thing together. It was a really a great benefit to have him there doing that. In all the interviews that rain has done with uh, about that episode, he's had nothing but great positive things to say about working with you as well. Well, thank you. I I'm, I'm delighted. I've only seen one of those interviews. Maybe I'll follow up with you with the other one, but I was, so I was delighted about that because I, you know, for him, it was a, it's a significant deal, right? Like you're coming onto this massive show. You're, you've got, there's a lot of money on it. There's a lot at stake. There's producers watching like there's, it's, it's a big thing. Like he directed some episodes of the office, but now this is a whole other thing. So, um, for him, like I, similarly to what we're saying about Patrick, I really wanted to make sure that I brought, enough for him to make it work for him right 
Um, he was already so the character of Harry Mudd was so established and so great. And he was already like, so in with that, but then it's like, as a director, can I, well, hopefully that, that doing everything that I, <clears throat> that I could to make sure the concept flew and that, um, pardon the pun. <laughs> so yeah, he's great. So with this role of Tevron Crit, you really got to put a lot into it. Uh, this is a character who has his own ship. He's got his own different voice. He's got, of course, his own species. Cause he's, you're covered in all these heavy prosthetics. Uh, and so we kind of touched this a little bit earlier in the interview, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about with this type of a character, how do you put these nuances and these subtle things that take it from being Harry Judge into becoming Tevron Crit? It's, I, I'm glad you're asking this question because it, a key part of the answer is the voice work that ended up happening. So let's start first with the the answer of like, what, how does Harry Judge become Tevron Crit? What's the, what are the differences there? So I talked about how my experience on the episodes had prepared me to be in prosthetic. They'd also given me time to feel into the essence of my read on the essence of what our version of a Tellarite is. You know, I spent I spent a long time looking in the mirror in to, at that face, at those different Tellarite faces, getting to send getting to the point where there were times when I was first shooting season one that it just, I stopped seeing a different face. There were times where I was looking, I'm like, yeah, there's, that's me. Like that's, it had just, it had just become, I'd become an, an, you know, it just felt like my face. And when I came back for one of the episodes, um, the last time I think I shot in season one, I, I missed, I found that like when the face went back on, I was like, oh, I've missed this face. Something had happened where it had really become it had felt like a part of me. And so that laid this foundation for when the prosthetic came on for, for Tevin Crit, the design again, slightly different, different hair, different facial structure, different uh, facial hair, but enough of that, you know, enough of that, I'd spent enough time doing that, that when that face came on, it was like receiving what that face was done, like tuning back into the parts of me that I had already identified as what is, what is this as a Tellerite? And then, um, making adjustments with this new version of the face and then dropping in to what that was. And the costume is a big part of that. I was always in my theater work, always very, very much influenced by uh, <laughs> costume, but also by hair. I totally felt like 50% of character for me came from hair. Like it was key to get that haircut to like some people, it's the shoes gotta be, the sh it's the sh gotta be the shoes. It's the shoes that, that really put them into character physicality. For me, there's something about having the right hair and then costume too. So it's like, I'm in these clothes. So how do these clothes want to be moved in? What, what do these clothes allow? What do they dictate? What do they, what's, how do they inform being in a sense, my hair for Tevin Crit is that whole head, right? It's that whole thing. It just woof, dropping in and to, to what is now the new body, the body that is, that is given by the head, but then also that is dictated by the costume, this costume that is muscular and rough and leather and, and broken in and, and black and, uh, worn and, um, functional. You know, there's, it's, it's, there's inf information in all of that. And the fact that it moves and it makes a sound and it's just like, all of that is, 
And so that even even some of those things can inform then how I would like I how I would choose my physicality in the perform in the performance and in the takes. Pretty much everything that I did in the Escape Artist, all of my physical movements is very are very precise. Like it's very deliberate how I'm working with the face and the head and the costume and wanting to move it in a certain way so it has that kind of feel, embodying that. And that is in terms of the I can tell you that that's the process. The how of that. I would say is something that just is part natural, part very much coming through um, some mask work that I did with Carl Hare in the University of Alberta. He talked about this process of scoring. And, you know, when you like if you take a knife and you score a line in a piece of wood or or something that you're going to cut, scoring a performance is a similar kind of reference where you're kind of carving out the physical action of the character of the performance or of the, or of the, of the moment that you're going to do. And so with my audition, the first audition I talked to you about that, I used just these subtle head movements. This was me scoring the, the, what I was going to do in the scene, just creating very definite, precise choices that were going to convey what I wanted it to physically. And there was a similar element of that happening in this, um, because it felt to me like, you, you know, that that's something that, as much as I love working with language and adore it, and, and I, you know, it's it's a huge aspect. Also, what I what I love it's I love bringing a physicality to a performance. So whether it's Henry V and the combat and the fight scenes in that, or the play version of Chariots of Fire where I'm running and playing the fastest man in the world and doing all of these you know stylized versions of running or peter pan where i'm like not we didn't have a fly system and i'm expressing the physicality that way just through movement and dance similarly to me it's like i we need to we need to to transmit to audience or camera this this physical energy and so it was important to me to like to bring a sense of threat of violence of physicality of a real sense of that that there's uh, that not only do i have Harry Mudd in custody, but I'm going to keep him there. And that's understood because this, this being has a kind of a full physicality. And so that was all factoring in as, as part of the work. And then the voice came out of that. So the voice was, um, like I said, it was a moment, it was something of a lot of consideration for me. I really took it seriously in terms of what I wanted to do. And I was, I was nervous, so nervous about how am I going to come out with a sound that's going to be consistent or like, or, or authentic that's going to match how I look because there's my voice, but how am I going to come up with <laughs> his voice? And it was, um, and I, I played with a few things with rain and rehearsal, but it, they just felt like uh, I was disheartened in the end because I'm like, I, I can't really do this right now. Like I'm going to have to wait till it's on me till I'm informed in the same way by the weight of the prosthetic, by that costume and by just the, the energy of the moment. And, I loved what ended up coming out. Like it was, it was, it was, it was guttural and it was dark and rough and, and musical too and tuneful. And we got this, there was a lot of vocal expression in there. And that was super important to me because the facial, my, my capacity for facial expression was really limited by the prosthetic. You know, it couldn't just be a look. I needed to tell as much of the story through, through the vocal story as well as possible. And, there was a trailer um, that was put together, a 30-second trailer, which was on Instagram and 
YouTube as well. It was a trailer for The Escape Artist. And if fans may have seen it or can find it, and if you, fi if you find that trailer, you can hear my unadulterated voice. The voice as was taken on set. I ended up going back in and having to um, re-record every single line and sound <laughs> that we shot. Everyone, every word, every kind of sound, snort, all of that, because because the prosthetic was sort of muffling to this extent that nothing came out. Everything was had to be kind of, to, to be picked up again, clear. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be Star Trek if it wasn't for ADR. Yeah. Right. So, and I was. I, and that's that's cool, but I was actually devastated. I'm like, what? When I found that out, I was like, no, because I felt I felt I felt triumphant over the vocal work that I'd done on the set. Like people were, you know, I was getting unsolicited sort of feedback from people on from some of the crew. Um, Mike McMahon, the writer, just loved what I was doing too. Like they really felt they I knew it was working, and I was when I heard that I had to go back in and do it all. I was just like mortified because. You know, normally I'd be like, oh, here's a chance to make it better. But I'm like, how am I going to recreate this? This was a function of the moment, of the energy of the moment, of the, of the makeup, of, the, of the, the prosthetic, of the costume, all of that. There's no way I'm going to sound the same. <laughs> and uh, so I went in really kind of anxious about it. And I, I ended up just stunned, totally blew me away that I, I got the same voice in the booth as what came on the day and i don't really know how it happened other than just the kind of dropping back in back into that embodiment that we talked about back into that sense of like okay i'm gonna i'm dropping back into that like almost like a sense memory a physical memory like a bit of a vibrational memory of what that experience was and then that allowed me to 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 get there again so i was i had the benefit of hearing it which is great and but but the hearing it was just, it didn't necessarily, it didn't help me recreate it. Do you know what I mean? It, it was great affirmation that what I was creating was getting back to that space. And so I felt really fortunate. <clears throat> the voice that you hear in the end is my work, but, it, but then they did alter it. So it's about, I don't know, I'd say 75% my voice in terms of, how much I dropped it and made it really guttural and like the, the lower register that I took it down to is um, a lot of that is me, but then they, they went further with it. So if you want to hear the unadulterated version, track down that trailer and, uh, and you'll hear a couple lines and, and get a sense of what that sound was. Can I put you on the spot right now and ask to talk with Tevin crit for a moment? Uh, <laughs> let me just think, okay, let me think for a minute and see if I can get, uh, I bet you never thought you'd see this face again, did you? No! Taverin Crit! You slept with my sister and stole my family's sacred cudgel. That's brilliant. <laughs> well done. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> and so I, I can really, you know, just having this chat with you now, I can really especially uh, hear the educator in your voice, because I don't know whether you realize it or not. And I hope our listeners can appreciate this, but you basically just gave a free masterclass on how to be working in prosthetics and how to handle the whole process and just how to actually act as a type of character. So thank you for that. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. That's great. So I know that Star Trek crews can't really say much about the next season of Discovery. So in the vaguest terms possible, without getting you in trouble, because I know 
If you say anything wrong, they're going to dismember you. But is there any <laughs> chance we will see Harry Judge in some form or another in the upcoming season of Discovery? I uh, you just have to keep watching. I mean, I know that's the stock answer, but it's it's the best uh, it's the best I can do. You know, like I what I'll say is it's still being shot in Toronto. Um, I still live in Toronto, and I know uh, you know I know I can tell you that I've heard it from casting that the production uh, likes using me and uh, you know has me on their radar. So yeah, keep watching, and we'll see. So beyond Star Trek Discovery, I know you've also done a few more theater things. Uh, I know you were in a production of Chariots of Fire. So can you just tell our listeners what else you're doing uh, these days besides Trek? Yeah, it, things are interesting on the acting front right now with where everything is. And so um, it's now like we're looking at from a voice work perspective, we're looking at the setting up of home home recording opportunities. And, and there are going to be new initiatives, I think. There are different opportunities that theaters are having sometimes for online performances the national arts center based out of ottawa has a really interesting um funding that they're going to set up where they're uh, i think they're setting aside 600 grand to fund artists for online performances um which is a really cool initiative and they set that up pretty early too so it's it'll be interesting to see outside the march is a local theater company that um does really interesting interactive immersive theater and so they're doing plays uh via phone call right now where you can phone in i'm not sure exactly too much about it i've done a show with them before but you can phone in and it's like uh it's a customized mystery play thing oh, interesting <laughs> i'm not haven't done it but like th- people are it's it's forcing people to find new forms and so so right now um what's happening for me there were some self-tapes that were that i'd done in terms of um acting that happened before productions got shut down so it's hard to say what might come of those um a lot of the basically productions are halted all over the place. The uh, voice uh, world is still being able to create content because like I said, we can, we can still record from home. So I have a self, a voice self tape to do today, in fact, and that will, so that's still continuing. And then, um, yeah. And then there's some other, other personal side business initiatives that are, are I'm taking the time, this particular window to continue to develop as well. Um, which are really interesting. It's using a very interesting technology that actually Star Trek uh, fans might be intrigued by, which is uh, the imprinting of frequencies into um, custom, into into jewelry and bracelets or bands that you can wear yourself. So, you know, if, um, for example, the Schumann resonance, it's a, it's, it's 7.83 Hertz. It's the frequency of the earth. It's created by electromagnetic activity of lightning. And it's a very life giving frequency and it helps mitigate a lot of other electromagnetic frequency exposure. So we're able to imprint this frequency permanently in bracelets, jewelry, items, pendants that you can wear. And then you can have that frequency on your person. Your body harmonizes with it, resonates to it. And, uh, a lot of benefits that can come from that. So, I was fortunate to connect with the um, the 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 creator of of this business. It's called Mistech, uh, Mistech.net. Uh, we met last year, and I'm in partnership with him now in uh, for the Canadian uh, side of Mistech. So, we're just in the process of launching uh, the Canadian site, Mistech.ca, and or you can go to Mistech.net if you're in the U.S. and learn more about that. All right. Now, as we conclude this interview, I have 
two more questions for you, but this first one is, is really the most important one. And Harry, you cannot hesitate when I ask this. I need an answer right away on this one. So get ready. Okay, go. Who is your favorite Starfleet captain? Picard. All right, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, it's the one. Thanks for asking. It's a good question. <laughs> All right, so Harry, uh, what has been the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? There's, uh, it's almost, I guess it may even be cliche or it may, it's probably something that's commonly said. And, but this idea of it being a family, I couldn't have known that it, how much more than words that is until having been part of this experience and now gone, being part of the experience and being on set is one thing, but unless you're part of the main cast, it ends. You go home and You've had your experience and you've, you know, you got your memories. You can watch the show. You can, you can, you've got that. You've maybe made some contacts or friends. Cool. But it's, it doesn't continue necessarily, but it can with Star Trek and through the convention experience. And my experiences last year at STLV and then at, um, you know, destination Star Trek in Birmingham were extraordinary. I was met with such warmth and welcome and uh care and extension and consideration and support um people who didn't even necessarily stop by my booth but just like pointed out to me were like thank you for being here and I was just like, wow like because i'm just this guy in a mask you know like people had barely when i was people had not a lot of people had even seen the, sh- the second short trek yet um, people hadn't necessarily seen Tevin Crit or, or would have known me from that makeup. And even, and my work in discovery wasn't featured in the same way that I was, it, what, that I was in the uh, short track. Right. So, um, I didn't have any anticipation of, of like being welcomed into the family, the way that I was. And, and that's powerful, Matthew. It is something special to go to, to have this group of people, this, this, um, this collective <laughs> heart uh, take you into it and to feel like part of it. And then what happens too is you go, oh, and now that I am part of it, I want to continue to to grow that. Like I can understand, like I, I had uh, prior cast or like uh, cast members from other shows come up to me too and welcome me just to be like, you know, welcome and, and, and create that extension. And it's just like, it, it felt, it was beautiful and unexpected and so touching and, um, and consistent, you know, like it was, and the opportunity to really connect with some fans and, um, and learn about their experiences. And also one of the advantages that I had is because I didn't have lineups with me, you know, most people were at some of the, the bigger, uh, stars. I got to really drop in and have some longer conversations with people and some more personal connections. And, and that's, why I want to be there. I want to be part of the convention experience and I've loved it because I grew up as, as that fan. I grew up working in comic book stores and watching these shows and, and reading sci-fi. And, and so it's like, I know what it is to love a world so much that it's, you know, that it lives within you. And so that has been a really special part. And yes, the best part of it. Oh, it's really great to talk to someone who's involved in the Star Trek universe 
and is also just such a, a lover of it, such a big fan of being a part of it too. So that's that's great to hear. Harry, I, I wish you much success in all of your business ventures and hopefully seeing you again in Star Trek, maybe as another Tellwright or perhaps even just yourself next time. We'll see how things go. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matthew. And I also hope that you do catch the real Harry Mudd one day and get that cudgel back. <laughs> oh, his time will come. And that was our guest for this week, Harry Judge. And Harry also wanted me to mention that you can hear him in his first ever audiobook on Audible and Amazon Prime, which is called Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister. And that's all about Justin Trudeau's first term in office. And when I say it's his first book, it's his first time doing an audiobook, since this book was not written by himself. But he did read it, obviously out loud, and before he did the performance, and he said he enjoyed it a great deal. So if you're interested in Canadian politics, there's something for you to check out later. The Tellarites first appeared in Season 2 of the original series in the episode Journey to Babel. The first actor to wear the Tellarite makeup was John Wheeler, a veteran actor who appeared in just about any TV show you can name from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The makeup he wore was extremely difficult to see out of and didn't offer the actor much visibility. In order to see where he was going in the scenes he was performing in, Wheeler had to lift his head higher than normal, which he incorporated into his portrayal of Gav the Tellarite, leading to the lore within the series of them being a very proud and oftentimes arrogant species in all future iterations of them. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We'd appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and let us know what you think about the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, and shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event or anything else, you can email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.